2 Samuel chapter 2, verse number 12. And Abner the son of Ner and the servants of Ishbosheth the son of Saul, went out from Mahanian to Gibeon. And Joab the son of Zariah and the servants of David went out and met together by the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down. The one on the one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. And Abner had a stupid idea. Okay? Now, that's not King James. That was the MRV, the Mike Reagan version. <laughs> but I wanted your attention to be drawn to what's going to happen here. And Abner said to Joab, Yet the, let the young men now arise and play before us. And Joab said, Let them arise. The only thing stupider than what Abner said was Joab's response. These two men are captains. They're responsible for the lives of those young men. And they're being idiots here. Verse 15, Then there arose and went over by number twelve of Benjamin, which pertained to Ishbosheth the son of Saul, and twelve of the servants of David. And they caught everyone his fellow by the head and thrust his sword in his fellow's side, so there fell down together. So they fell down together. So everybody lost. They sent twelve guys into this stupid little thing, and all twelve fell down together, right? Wherefore the place was called, now help me, Lord, Helkath Hazarim which is in Gibeon. And there was a very sore battle that day, and Abner was beaten and the men of Israel before the servants of David. And there were three sons of Zariah there, Joab and Abishai and Asahel. And Asahel was light of foot as a wild roe. And Asahel pursued after Abner, and in going he turned not to the right hand or the left hand from following Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and said, Art thou Asahel? And he said, I am. And Abner said unto him, Turn thee aside to thy right hand or thy left, and lay thee hold on one of the young men, and take thee his armor. But Asahel would not turn aside from following him. And Abner said to Asahel, Turn thee aside from following me, wherefore should I smite thee to the ground? How then should I hold up my face to Joab thy brother? Howbeit he refused to turn aside, wherefore Abner with the hinder end of the spear smote him under the fifth rib, that the spear came out behind him. And he fell down there and died in the same place. And it came to pass that as many as came to the place where Asahel fell down and died stood still. Joab also and Abishai pursued after Abner. And the sun went down when they were come to the hill of Amma, which lieth before Geha by the way of the wilderness of Gibeon. The children of Benjamin gathered themselves together after Abner and became one troop and stood on the top of an hill. And Abner called to Joab and said, Shall the sword devour forever? Knowest thou not that it will be bitterness in the latter end? How long shall it be then, ere thou bid the people return from following their brethren? Joab said, As God liveth, unless thou hast spoken, surely then in the morning the people had gone up, everyone from following his brother. So Joab blew a trumpet, and all the people stood still and pursued after Israel no more, neither fought they any more. And Abner's men walked all that night through the plain and passed over Jordan and went through all Bithron and came to Mahanaim. <coughs> And Joab returned from following Abner, and when he had gathered all the people together, there lacked of David's servants nineteen men and Asahel. That's twenty total. So twelve died in the original fight, the original contest, and then eight more of David's men died. And the servants of David had smitten of Benjamin and of Abner's men, so that three hundred and three score men died, three hundred and sixty in total. And they took up Asahel and buried him in the sepulcher of his father, which is in Bethlehem. And Joab and his men went all night and came to Hebron. At the break of day. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask Him to bless the preaching this morning and then we'll get into the message. Father, I love you this morning and I pray that you'd help us now as we look at this story.
I pray, Lord, that we'd uh, get the sense of this thing and understand what it is you'd have for us to learn from it this morning so we can, Father, we cannot cause the problems in our own lives, in our homes, in our church, in the people around us that we see caused here by this foolish actions. Help us to make the application, we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, you can be seated. Take a look with me, if you would, at the first verse of this chapter. It says in verse number 1, And it came to pass after this that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said unto him, Go up. And David said, Whither shall I go up? And he said unto Hebron. Notice the first phrase, And it came to pass after this. Man, that phrase is absolutely chock full of information. It came to pass after this. Well, what, what's that talking about? It's talking about all that had gone on in David's life, all the circumstances that had built up to this point. Now, think about that for a minute. A lot has happened to David. Many years have gone by since he was anointed to be the king over Israel. God had come and God had, that would be like his call to preach almost. God had come, he had sent Samuel in there and, and God's anoints David to be the king of that nation. What a powerful thing. What an amazing thing that is. David's had this walk with God that is so obvious, it's amazing to me. He's so close to the Lord. I mean, a lion and a bear he kills. He's out there just doing what he's supposed to do, taking care of those sheep and being faithful to his dad. His dad sends him down to the battle. He goes down, he sees his brother. He's already been anointed. He sees his brethren down there. They attack him when he gets there. He's done nothing wrong. He's just doing what his father says, done nothing wrong. And when he shows up at the battle, their their evil spirit, their envious nature, like we preached about, they turn on him for no good reason. He hears this giant come down there and start blaspheming God, and he says, I ain't putting up with that. He goes in before Saul. Saul sends him out there to fight. He wins the battle. You know the story. Saul's envy triggers shortly thereafter because God is doing something with this kid. This kid is being used of God to establish Saul's kingdom. David is Saul's friend. Do you understand that? David is the best thing that's ever happened to Saul. I mean, other than Saul and God having a good relationship. The second best thing God could do for Saul is give him a man like David to help him out. And because he sees talent and he sees ability and he sees God's hand and he sees power and he sees fruitfulness happening in that other person's life and he therefore, because of his envious nature, because of his selfish nature, he begins to see him as a threat and immediately tries to snuff out that threat and that results in years of David having heartbreak after heartbreak and problem after problem because of the sin of somebody else perpetrated into his life. He goes through that whole thing. You remember, right? He had multiple opportunities, more than one, to take Saul out. He had Abishai there, one of the greatest messages ever preached, the loyalty of Abishai. He had Abishai there ready to kill Saul for him. I mean, what a perfect setup. I didn't kill him, my guy did. (laughs) What a shortcut to getting what it is God had put in you. Listen, Once God calls you to do something, there ought to be a desire in you to get where God wants you to be, right? David's no different than you and I. I guarantee you the desire to be on that throne had to be strong in David. The natural leadership capability of David, even at his lowest moments when he's running from Saul and he's over there in the cave of Adullam, what happens? All that are in debt, distressed, and discontented, those guys begin to gather themselves around David and he takes a ragtag, rough group and starts training those men to be great warriors and they're loyal to their king. He's naturally a leader. 
He's skilled at war. He's got everything it takes to go ahead and short-circuit the process in his life to get where God called him to be. God wanted, and God did want him to be on that throne, right? Multiple opportunities come up in David's life to short-circuit the process. He never once does it. What a man. Even when circumstance looked like this is the hand of God, God delivered this situation. The Lord set it all up. How many Christians have I heard blame it on God when they were just stinking, lousy, rotten sinners? It was God. God set it up. Oh, really? It wasn't God at all. David knew this. It's not right to do wrong to get a chance to do right. David would not lift up his hand against the Lord's anointed, which was Saul, even to get Saul's throne, even though God called him to be on that throne and he knew it. All this stuff's happening in Saul's life. Saul and Jonathan get really tight. I mean, they become the best of friends. You know what struck me the most about that? Jonathan was the king's son. Do you know what that means? (laughs) He's what? He's heir to the throne. But God anoints David to take his spot that he had a right to by his heredity. Saul's my dad. Jonathan recognizes, listen, God's been good to me. God put me in the king's palace. God raised me in a king's home. But that's the man that God wants on that throne. And since God wants that man on that throne, then I honor what God wants. And Saul and Jonathan got really tight. You know what? There was not between Saul and Jonathan ever at any point a competitive spirit. You know what David never became against Saul? Competitive. Even though Saul was competitive towards David and envious of David, David never returned the favor. David refused to compete with the man that was competing with him because David recognized, listen, he's the man of God. He's the man God put on that throne. God put him on it and God can take him off it. And God promised me the throne so when God is ready, God will put me on the throne and I'm not going to have to lift a finger in the wrong way and do anything to get what God said God's going to give me because God will put me there if God wants me there. You see a total lack of a competitive spirit? Interestingly enough, Jonathan and David, there there never came a competitive spirit. And how did Jonathan end his life? Well, it's very unfortunate, right? He winds up dying with his father. Uh, I got a lot of questions about that. I've been musing on it a little bit, and I just just suggest this. I'm not going to make a dogmatic statement on it. I think the only mistake Jonathan probably made was not just going with David that day his dad tried to pin him to the wall with the spear. I don't think he, because David, David never was in any, in any way in any kind of an insurrection against Saul, right? There was no rebellious nature there. He was not trying to overthrow Saul. He wasn't doing anything wrong. So my thought is Jonathan probably messed up in going back home. My thought is as a grown man, when his dad was that full of the devil, he needed to just leave him alone and walk away. By the way, according to the Bible, that is honoring your father and mother. As an adult, you honor your father and mother by allowing them the liberty to make whatever decisions they want to make. And you shut your mouth about it and leave them alone. Doesn't mean they still control you like they did back when you were a little kid. Tell you what to do, when you do it, where to go. How to, you honor what they want to do, and if they want to be that way, let them be that way and just follow God. I think that's what Jonathan did wrong. And as a result of staying close to Saul, Jonathan winds up dead, right? 
But boy, Jonathan's reputation and his name and his, his spot in the history of Israel and his spot in the Word of God, that's a beautiful spot, ain't it? You know why? Because he refused to compete. God goes ahead and he puts David for the first seven and a half years. God puts David on the throne in Judah. And that's what's happening here in the first part of this passage. What I find very interesting is that David asks God at this point, he says, he inquires of the Lord, shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said unto him, go up. And David said, whither shall I go up? And he said unto Hebron. Now I find that to be a very, very interesting thing. Because to me, it's not even a matter at that point of praying about that, right? I mean, Saul's dead. There's a massive vacancy in Israel, is there not? This vacuum of leadership all of a sudden comes in a battle against the Philistines. There's now a vacuum of leadership and I'm anointed of God to be on that throne. And all this time, that demon-possessed psychopath has been hunting me down, and I never one time overstepped in eliminating him, to even in self-defense, to get where I know God wants me to be. Are you getting the picture of all this? And now that Saul's off the scene, David still doesn't run and jump on the throne. David understood a sense of timing. And he knew that the right thing at the wrong time is the wrong thing. David says, God, should I go up? Then God says, yes, go up. And he says, okay, where do I go? God says, go to Hebron. Now, here's what I find strange because we already read the story of Abner and Joab, right? What I find strange is that when we read this story, I don't find Abner nor Joab following David's playbook in anything. Their process of making decisions seems nothing like David's. Now, Abner should have known better because Abner followed Saul. And, 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 and I'm going to submit this argument to you that Abner was actually a good guy. David defended that. I don't have time to turn to all the passages, but David defended Abner as a good man, a great man, a prince in Israel. Abner had a loyalty to his master Saul, and that's a good thing. David respected that kind of character out of a captain like Abner. Abner was actually a good man. Abner should have recognized, listen, I've been following a guy that wasn't like that. So he should have had the sense to say, I'm not going to copycat the actions that Saul had because I'm smart enough to see the difference. Saul messed everything up and caused all kinds of problems and David's been a good man. But I mean, forget Abner. How about Joab? Joab was David's guy. Joab was David's captain. Joab had been with David for a while. Joab certainly should have known better. He should have been following the playbook of his king. But you know what he doesn't do? He doesn't follow the playbook of his king in this passage. You get the picture? You guys realize there's a lot of people following Saul out there. And they ought to have the sense to realize it ain't working. But guess what? They don't always. And some of them are really not bad people. There's actually some very decent people out there that right now they're on Saul's side. But they're not your enemy. Here's David, he is on, Joab, he is on David's side. That's you and I. We ought to be following our king. 
We ought to be close enough to God and be watching how God works and how God moves and what God does and doesn't do enough to where we know how to make the right decisions because we follow the playbook of our king. Joab nor Abner follow the playbook of David whatsoever. And as a result, they wind up in this stupid competition they should not have been in. That's what happens when when Abner makes this suggestion to Joab in verse number 14. He says, let the young men now arise and play before us. Now, I got looking at that because I thought something about this doesn't feel right. I ran every verse in the Bible that had to do with the word play. And you know what's funny is one time it says it's in reference to a battle. Let us now play the men for the people and for the cities of our God. Most of the time when you find the word play, it has nothing really to do with a war. I got thinking even further on this, like this doesn't make any sense because... (laughs) How, how's this whole thing panning out? I mean, these guys, they, they show up at this meeting and they sit down and that's, that's not the way you'd think they'd behave, they would be behaving. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse number 1. Here's an interesting point. It says, Now there was long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, but David waxed stronger and stronger and the house of Saul waxed weaker and weaker. Now I've always read that as David's house and Saul's house were fighting against each other once Saul was dead, fighting for the kingdom. But that is not at all what that thing's saying. When you look up the word between in the English dictionary, it actually, one of the meanings can be belonging to two or more in common partnership. Judah and Israel, Joab under David and Abner, For five years, Abner fights with no king. Because when this whole thing began, what happens is they're in a battle against the Philistines, right? Israel's in a battle against the Philistines. David's down in Ziklag. Remember the story? David tries to come with Moab. He heads back, that whole thing. Then the war comes. Saul gets killed. So Israel's still fighting this battle. Soon as Saul gets killed, Judah goes and gets David, and they make him their king over Judah. And he reigns over Judah for seven and a half years. Abner comes in 2 Samuel chapter number 2, and after five years of continuing to lead Israel without a king, he takes Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and makes him king over Israel. And Ishbosheth reigns for two years until he's killed, and David gets the entire kingdom after seven and a half years reigning just over Judah. Are you with me so far? Israel and Judah were both fighting the same enemy, but there was a split. The split had come because Abner's in this position after having followed his master Saul. Now, it it makes more and more sense as you look at it because when you go back even to chapter number 1 and the guys that, 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 that winds up killing Saul, he shows up thinking he's bringing David good news and David says, how is it that you were not afraid to, to lift up your sword against the Lord's anointed? And David kills him. And then the men of Jabesh Gilead go and they get Saul and Jonathan and they bury him. And David says, hey guys, good job in honoring the king. There was not a rift there between Israel and Judah. What I'm trying to show you is, and I don't have the time to go spell it all out for you because I got to get to the meat of the message here. But what I'm trying to show you is what has been going on in Israel is that David winds up ruling over Judah. There's Israel with Abner. They're both fighting the same enemy, the Philistines. And David is doing everything in his power to continue being David. David didn't see this void of leadership and this split and the instability as his opportunity to go ahead and make himself king over the whole nation. 
He said, God, what do I do now? And God said, go up. Where do I go? God says, Hebron. David goes and does what God says. Only Judah makes David king. Israel has no king for five years when you do the math. Idiots will tell you there's a mistake in the Bible because it says David reigned for seven and a half years and Ishbosheth was only king for two years. So how does that work? Because as soon as Ishbosheth dies, David becomes king. Hey, moron. Five years went where they didn't have time to make a king. Abner was in the middle of a major war with the Philistines. And as the war wore on, Israel got weaker and weaker and Judah got stronger and stronger. They had good leadership. And so what's happening is there's this, this rift that's beginning to be created. And David is always sending messages of peace to Saul's side. He never forces himself to become their king. David was more concerned about keeping the peace and keeping the unity and not shedding blood. And he saw a bigger picture. Folks, that is why God said, I sought me a man after mine own heart. That was David. He wasn't going to hurt any of God's people, even when some of them were against him. Did you hear me? He wouldn't hurt God's people even when some of them were against him. No wonder he's the greatest king Israel ever saw. He would not compete when he wasn't supposed to compete. When he's not supposed to shed blood, he won't shed it. Well, we'll get to an exception down the road. Because he's human like you and me, and he did mess up. But right now, David will not get this thing going when he had the power to get it going because he doesn't want bloodshed between brothers. Joab shows up over here because he won't follow David's playbook and he listens to Abner's stupid little advice. I want you to notice the folly of having a competitive spirit. Nothing is more foolish than what Joah, Abner and Joab set out to do. It's foolish because they didn't stop to consider the will of their king. Joab never at any point stopped to say, hey, I wonder what David would want me to do. He goes ahead and he blunders on into this thing and he's more concerned about his own will and his own desire in this competition between Abner and Joab to see who's the greater captain. He's more concerned about his own prestige, his own recognition. So when Abner makes a proposition, Joab says, all right, let's do it. Let's see who the man is. He should have stopped and said, wait a minute, David, you want me to fight this fight? Abner's proposing that we have a battle, and I tell you right now, I can whoop these guys, and we'll put you on the throne. You know what David would have said? Don't you dare. That's what David would have said. Let me say this. You and I are absolute fools when we go ahead and make a move and make a decision without first consulting with our king to see what his will is in the matter. A lot of times in the Christian life, and I've watched it happen in church, you'll make decisions based on what you want for your future, and you won't stop to ask God what He wants for your future because you've got a competitive nature. Some more than others. If you're one of those individuals that says, well, I'm not really competitive, okay, this message is still for you because you're stuck being around people who are. And when competitive people get around you, they'll put a knife in you to get ahead of you. They won't stop to consider the will of the king, and that is a fool's errand. Anytime you put your will ahead of the will of God, you're on a fool's errand. David was their leader. David should have been considered. 
for what they, before they made the move, they should have asked him what he wanted. You know what I find interesting? The, the, the James and John. I'm sorry, Peter. Peter goes to the Lord. Well, Lord, what's this man going to do? Remember in John 21? The Lord says, if I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? Follow thou me. Peter's competitive nature is worrying about what God's going to do with John. Jesus' response, if I will, he tarry till I come. You know all the disciples did? Oh, he's going to tarry till the Lord's come. The Lord never said that. It was their, their foolish presumption because they had a competitive spirit. Oh, what, what, what's John doing? Who cares what John's doing? Well, why weren't they here? Who cares whether or not they're here? Well, why are they on the... Well, what do you care? If it's God's will for them, then doesn't that make you happy? Doesn't this, this kind of message stinks, don't it? The competitive nature. They had no respect for something else. They had no respect for David's will, but they had no respect for David's grace either. Look at verse 5. David sent messengers unto the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said unto them, Blessed be ye of the Lord, that ye have showed, the kind, that showed this kindness unto your Lord, even unto Saul, and have buried him. You see that? Saul was David's enemy. Saul was David's enemy. But guess what? They were both God's chosen people. It was still Israel. And now the Lord show kindness and truth unto you, in verse 6, and I will also requite you this kindness because you have done this thing. Now watch this. I'm showing you there wasn't a war between Judah and Israel. Look at verse 6, uh, verse 7. Therefore now let your hands be strengthened and be ye valiant. For your master Saul is dead and also the house of Judah have anointed me king over him. David encouraged his enemies to keep fighting the fight. Those that were his protagonists, his antagonists, right? To keep fighting. That was Israel. Those people been with Saul hunting him. And those guys go and they take his enemy and they bury his enemy. He says, good job, fellas. You did the right thing. That's really good. I'm glad to see that. Now listen, fellas. Be strong. Stay with it. Keep fighting. Don't quit. Judah's made me king. I'll be over here doing the same job. Let's go get them Philistines. You see the spirit of David? You see why God made him the king? Don't you know what those guys are saying about you? It doesn't matter. Don't you know how they've critic? It don't, it don't matter. Don't you know how much they're cutting you down behind your back? It don't matter. You know, they said you were after Saul's throne the whole time, and now you've got the kingdom because you really wanted it the whole time, and you were just happy at Saul's death. Are you joking? I was mourning Saul's death. That thing's a mess for me. Not only is that my father-in-law, but he was my biggest pain in the neck you could possibly have. And on top of that, my best friend, his son. What a mess of emotions David had to be. You understand what an absolute mess of emotions he had to be? And here he is, now he's king over Judah, and them guys are on the other side, and they're still kind of antagonistic toward him. And he's encouraging them to stay at it. Listen, when it comes to your brothers and sisters in Christ, you ought to encourage them to stay in the fight, no matter what they've done to you. You ought to help strengthen their hand in the Lord, whether you like them or not. That's hard preaching. I know I don't have to scream and stop for it to be hard preaching. You know why? Because we got the same enemy. It's out there. It's not in here. And there's another problem. The king loves them. Do you, know, do you understand that's a problem for me? I got some enemies that love the Lord. 
Ain't that terrible? <laughs> I mean, there's some people that love the Lord that don't love me. And I think God sits back and watches to see what I'll do if I'm going to compete against them or if I'll strengthen their hand in the Lord because God is what matters and the will of the king is more important than my own will and I'd be a fool to start competing against somebody that's fighting for him even if they're against me. The folly of a competitive spirit. Notice number two, the fallout from a competitive spirit. Look at verse number 14. Abner says to Joab let, Yo, Joab, let the young men now arise and play before us. And Joab said, let them arise. All right, so that's the original contest, right? That's the original competition. This thing started out, extri- this wasn't like a typical war, that not from what I see in the Bible. This thing starts out where they gather, and one's on one side, one's on the other. And Abner's like, hey, Joab, your boys are pretty tough. Respect. So are mine. Let's see who the better man is. Let's see who's training their guys better. Let's let the young men, the new guys. Let's let you know, the white belts, bring the white belts out. Let's see who's, who's better. See, I think it was a contest between Joab and Abner because they didn't pull out their most experienced guys. They pulled out the young men, the new recruits. Honestly, it's a better mark on the instructor's belt if his new guys are smoking everybody else's new guys, because he's obviously the better instructor. That makes sense? Let the young men arise and play. That's the original contest. No big deal. 12 and 12. You notice in that thing, nobody won? All 12 of them died? You know, when you start competing against somebody else in church, you start worrying about their status and their position and whether or not... You know what's going to happen? There's going to be fallout from your decisions that cause other people to get hurt because you're so about yourself, that's all you can think about and all you can see. Listen, I'm not way out in left field here when I'm preaching this. Do you know the problems in churches, where they come from? Youth groups, nurseries, and music. Do you know why? Because naturally, you know what young people do? Naturally, they can't help it. You know what you do when you get young people together? You get them to compete. Right? You put sports out there. You break them up into teams. It's natural. And by the way, that's the time to go ahead and compete. Not in spiritual things. You know why problems always come up in the music? Because it's so personal. It's, 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 I mean, you, you are showing your talent. That's not, I'm not saying that that's wrong. When you get up to sing, everybody sits and sees your talent or they can see your lack thereof. So if you're not really good at it, please just don't ask to be on the list, okay? Be honest with yourself. Gentlemen, ask your wife. Ma'am, please be honest with him for the rest of our sake, okay? You understand what I'm saying? Man, music departments, I'm telling you, some of the biggest problems I've ever had as a pastor started in the music department. Why? There, there, there tends to be a little bit of a competitive nature that begins, well, I want to do it this way. Well, I want to do it that way. Why? Well, do, well, did you see? How come she always winds up on the list right after I sing? Nurseries? That competitive spirit. I'm telling you right now, when you allow that thing to begin, you ever get around these people that start using their kids as the point of competition? My kids are better than your kids. 
Listen, we all have kids, okay? None of us really care. You can give me an amen. Amen. Everybody else, you all got grandkids? Some of you got grandkids? Okay. Do you really care about somebody else's grandkid? I mean, you do, because you, but you really don't, right? Like, oh, look at my grandkid. <laughs> Happy for you, but like, I'm not saying, I'm not taking this too far, right? But do you ever see that kind of thing? Where it literally becomes a competition on who has the best marriage? Who has the best job? Who drives the best car? Who has the best house? Oh, another new dress? Fellas, you shouldn't even be going there, okay? If you're like, oh, another new suit, I'm just weirded out, all right? (laughs) But there's a fallout from a competitive spirit that actually winds up affecting other people more than you expected because all you're thinking about when you're competing against somebody else is where you are ranking and how you look. And God ain't within a thousand miles of that. Not in here. So not only do 12 guys die from each side, but then, since nobody won, these two knuckleheaded leaders, these two captains that ought to have seen what was going on and known better, these two men that have seen enough bloodshed there, they should have said, you know what, I've seen this before, we're stopping this right now. Joab should have said, Abner, I'd love to, and I'd smoke you, man, with my eyes closed, and my guys would stink and use your guy's body as a lunch table. You understand what I'm saying? Once we're done killing them, we'll just... Never mind. Anyways. But my king don't operate that way, and I've seen enough bloodshed, and the lives of these men that follow me, they're too valuable to sacrifice them on the altar of my ego, so take your competition somewhere else. You want to compete? Let you and me go. He should have never got into that situation. But his pride got hit. His competitive nature got struck just the right way. And he said, all right, let's do it. And then when nothing good came of it, because everybody falls down and dies in that stupid little game they played, then the thing boils over and there's a war that breaks out between these two armies. And I mean, man, they are going after it. Hey, look, real good, right? Joab wins. I mean, Joab wins decisively. He lost his 12 young men. Yeah, that stinks. He lost eight more guys. Yeah, that stinks. But good night, man. Abner lost like, what, 360? He smoked Abner. Boy, Abner's taking off with his tail tucked between his legs. He's like, man, I should have never got myself in that position. And I'll tell you what, when you start competing in church and you lose, it stinks. It's real humiliating. It's real bad. But let me ask you a question. Did Abner really lose? Who actually lost? Because Abner lost 360 guys, but Joab, Joab lost 19 guys plus his brother. Who walked away from that competition more wounded? Joab or Abner? Joab. What I'm trying to point out to you is that even if you win when you're competing against somebody in church, you still lose. Nobody wins when we start getting at each other and getting at each other's throats. Nobody. Here Joab is, man. He sends this fight into the, into the fray, and I'm, I'm showing you this thing. This, there was peace between them before. Watch it. As Asahel in verse number 19 is pursuing Abner, he's not turning to the right hand nor from the left. 
Abner looks behind him and says, Art thou Asahel? He recognized him. He knew him well enough, been in enough battles together, and had seen the way he moves enough to know who he is. He says, I am. He says, turn to the side of the right hand or the left, man, but don't do this. I'm a little older, I'm a little more experienced, and I can't keep up with you young guys, man. You're moving real fast. You better stop. He won't turn aside. He says, listen, stop. Because how am I going to look at your brother? How am I going to look at your brother in the face? That wasn't a couple of unfamiliar enemies. Why would he say, stop, I'm going to have to look at your brother in the face after I defend myself against you? You better knock this off. You see what I'm saying? This was a stupid competition that never should have kicked off in the first place. He stays on his tail. He won't back off. He won't back off. And finally, Abner, with his much greater experience level, had a trick up his sleeve the stupid kid didn't have in his mind. Because he's just, he's just showing off how fast he is, how strong he is. We're going to win this competition. I'm on the right side. When you get caught up in a fight God doesn't want you in, you're never on the right side. That's some good marriage counseling. When you get caught up in a fight God doesn't want you in, you never win. Because you're shedding the wrong blood. We ought not be shedding one another's blood in church. Yes, people will get on your nerves. Sometimes they will surpass you. Sometimes they will get the position that you wanted. Sometimes you'll get busted down. You'll think you're up for a promotion, but you get a demotion instead. Absolutely 100%. That is your opportunity to show God your character and your heart and let God in God's time put you on the throne if God wants you on the throne. And if he doesn't, what do you want it for anyhow? I don't want anything I'm not equipped to do good with. I don't want a pastor at a church that I'm just going to hurt and split and destroy and ruin and pressure and run off a cliff because I'm pushing you to serve God that I push you right off the cliff. Hey, I don't want nothing God don't want me to have. I'm happy in my life and I want to stay that way and I got to crucify that competitive spirit because I'm more of a competitor than almost all you put together, I'll bet you. Well, I won't challenge you that bad, but I'm just saying it's there. You understand what I mean? You got to crucify that thing. Abner's running from him and saying, Stop, boy. And the kid's like, No, no, no. I'm on the right side. I'm on the right. He says, Okay, fine. Boom. He just stops and just wham that thing back like that. And that boy's speed versus Abner's technique, that spear, the hinder end of his spear, not the sharp side, goes straight out his back. And he drops down dead right there. And boy, he messed with a couple of the wrong boys, man. Because Joab. He's fierce, he's harsh, he's hard, he's manipulative, he's mean, he's nasty, and he'll stop at absolutely nothing to get his will done. He's a chronic manipulator all the way through. When you study the story of Joab, you watch that guy. David says, man, you sons of Zariah are too hard for me. That is a man who killed thousands of people and knew when to swing the sword and when not to swing the sword. David, I told you before, is probably my favorite Bible character because that man could sit and play a harp, take care of sheep, look out for widows, take care of people, and he could ride off into battle without fearing anything but God himself and slaughter thousands. He had a great balance. He stops and he puts that sword back through Joab's brother 
and he messed with the wrong guy. He gets up there on the top of that hill. He's running. He's got the high ground now. His guys gather around him. Talking about the fallout from a competitive spirit. Joab's dead. 360 Israelites are dead. 20 including, including Asahel. 20 of Judah's guys are dead. And Abner gets up there and says, Hey, David, how long are we going to keep doing this? You see the verse? We read it earlier. Don't you know that the latter end is bitterness? Well, that was a really wise saying, stupid. I'm calling him that. I'm not calling you that, right? Yeah, we do know that. You should have said that before this ever started. You're the guy that wanted the fight in the beginning, and now you don't like where it's gone. And now you're saying, don't you know the latter end is bitterness? Well, hello, dummy. Why didn't you think of that before you started the competition? Hey, Joab, why didn't you think about the fact that men are going to die before you agreed to something stupid? The older I get, the more I honestly think there's great power and great wisdom in knowing when to walk away. You want to fight? Not you, man. See, (laughs) I mean, come on. I mean, isn't that kind of cool? Like, what, you? I'm going to fight you? No, I'm not going to fight. Have a nice day. I mean, really want to insult them. Don't do this unless you've got super good back defense. But just, just like... We're good. Just turn your back on him. Like I'm not even. I'm not even one bit afraid of you. No. I'm not going there. The more we can have that spirit, church, the more God will bless us, and the happier you're going to be in church, and the more you're going to see God do something with you. And boy, we need to teach our kids. We don't go there. The latter end of that is bitterness. Stop it. Well, you know what they said about me? Well, you know what she said? Well, she sat by her and didn't sit by me. Stop. People are people. That's going to happen. We're on the same team. You let God settle it in God's time. You just do right, David. You just don't get caught up in that, David. You let them slaughter each other if they want to, and you don't get involved. Why? Because there's a God in heaven who loves Joab, and he loves Abner. And he didn't want the two of them fighting in the first place. He loves Judah and he loves Israel. That bothers me. Because I know that I've shed some blood of people that God loved. And just because I loved God and they didn't love me, I made the immature assumption, the foolish assumption, that since I love God and they don't love me, they don't love God. And that ain't the facts. There is a fallout from the competition that goes beyond what we ever expected it to be. I'm telling you this. If you're struggling in your marriage, your answer is not divorce. There are very rare instances that I understand it has to happen. Okay? And if you're in one of those very rare instances, you better get some really good counsel and spend some time fasting and praying before you make those, those decisions. But the vast majority of the divorces that are happening nowadays... Nobody really wins. It's the blood of war where God intends there to be peace. It turns into a competition and a power struggle and it self-destructs. I've seen it all. I've seen him get divorced young. I've seen him get divorced old. We're going to wait till the kids are grown up because then it'll work. I've seen none of it work out. Talking about the fallout from the competition, you can't even predict. You can't even predict where this stuff's going to go. 
I have watched church splits happen throughout my life. I've sat there at a little, as a little boy and watched them take place and been so sick as a little boy, I go home and can't even eat because I know what just happened. I've watched them. I've watched them jump up and yell at the preacher and the preacher yell at them and them try to fire the preacher and the preacher kick the whole church out and start over again. I've, I've seen it like you wouldn't believe. How did it get that bad? Somebody started competing and didn't stop to consider whether or not God wanted them fighting that battle, but they're right and they're just and the other person has started it and I'm going to finish it. Yeah, you didn't look at the fallout, did you? The fallout's always worse than you think it's going to be. Leads me to my last point. I want you to see the follow-up to a competitive spirit. Verses 26 and 27 are interesting. Abner calls to Joab and says, Shall the sword devour forever? Knowest thou not that the latter end of it, that that it will be bitterness in the latter end, right? How long shall it be then, ere thou bid the people return from following their brethren? Joab's response is, As God liveth... Unless thou hast spoken, surely then in the morning the people would have gone up, everyone from following his brother. So what he was saying is this. He said, listen, as God liveth, I was only going to chase you through the night. We were going to kill as many as we could until the sun came up and then we were going to quit. See how they're pulling the name of God into it? As God liveth, we weren't going to keep going forever. We, we, were, just going to, we were just going to put a good whooping on you and then we were going to let it go. Now, What's really interesting about this is that they, they make peace, right? Because when he spoke, Joab says, okay, you got it, we're done. No problem. Fight's over. But guess what? It's not over. You know how many times I've seen people make a false peace between them? You know how many times that competitive spirit is still there, but you both realize this is going real bad. This isn't right. This isn't happening the right way. And we need to negotiate something. We need to stop this. And so, you know, come in the office. We're going to talk. Let's try to get this worked out. Let's, let's, let's stop this issue. You know, this is really not going good. Okay, fine. Oh, we're good? Are you good? I'm good. Yes, we're good. We're good. With the, okay, we're good with each other. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah, right. I was born at night, but not last night. It ain't over. Don't act like it's over when it ain't over. Joab says, okay, fine. You got it. I'm sure in the back of Joab's mind, he's thinking, if I can take out Abner and wipe out this whole mess, I can put David on the throne of Israel, and David deserves it. And Abner's going to set that Ishbosheth over the house of Saul and all the rest of this stuff. I'm sure Joab had all kinds of ways of justifying his wicked, malicious, constant, chronically hard, mean, nasty, manipulative. I'm sure he had all kinds of godly ways of justifying his actions. But what had happened is Job had a root of bitterness that set into his heart because you killed my brother. And Abner's smart enough, been around enough to sense that thing and says, don't you know the latter end of this is going to be bitterness? We need to stop, man. You're getting bitter. Too late. Do you know most of the time, by the time you begin to recognize the bitterness, it's too late? The bitterness is already there. Man, the follow-up to this thing is so nasty. Look at 2 Samuel 3, 7. Saul has a concubine whose name is Rizpah, the daughter of Ahiah. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Wherefore hast thou gone into my father's concubine? 
Then was Abner very wroth for the words of Ishbosheth, and said, Am I a dog's head, which against Judah do show kindness this day unto the house of Saul thy father, and to his brethren, and to his friends, and am not delivered thee into the hand of David, which thou, that thou chargest me today with a fault concerning this woman? So Ishbosheth, the king that Abner set on the throne, accuses Saul of taking, uh, accuses, accuses uh, Abner of taking Saul's concubine. That would be a power play move in that kind of a setup, in that kind of a culture. That would be him trying to claim king or get in there as a power play to become the king or something like that. Dishonor the king. So Ishbosheth, in his insecure leadership, makes a false accusation against one of his key men. You see the theme that keeps running through here? You see what keeps happening? He's intimidated by Abner, he's intimidated by his power. He's intimidated by his position, but there was nothing in Abner that was ever disloyal. Abner was loyal to a fault. He's loyal to Saul past when he should have been loyal, and David commends him for his loyalty because David recognizes that man's loyal because he's got a character of loyalty. And this foolish Bisheth makes a false accusation because God is working to set up his man on the throne of Israel when God was ready. God knew Saul David needed seven and a half years of experience over Judah before David was ready for the whole thing. So David put him there, God put him there, and God waited, and David was waiting on God, not fighting for it, letting it go. So then Abner comes in here and gets mad at Ishbosheth, so Abner begins the process that God had working all the time. Now, now stay with me, think about this. God's working the whole time. God's been working since God called Saul, since God anointed David. God's been watching all the foolish actions of all these people, and God's timing is absolutely perfect. God knows how to promote his man when he wants to, where he wants to, how God will work out all the details of your life. Do you hear me? Every detail. You say it can't because other people are messing up. There's so many competitive people. There's so many Saul's. There's so many Abner's. There's so many Joab's. There's just such a mess. They're going to just do away with all the good things. That are, they're going to ruin my life. Not if you handle it right, David. God's bigger than all of them. But if you get caught up in it, you're going to wind up paying the price. And you'll never be a David. God is fixing to put David where God wants David to be on the throne of Israel. So God allows this Ishbosheth to get this weird little insecure spirit and he starts making these accusations against one of his key guys and it ticks off Abner and he says, all right, fine. I'll set this up. I'll bring David in as the king. He comes down and meets with David. He, makes it, he has peace with the king. Now, now, I've been setting you up for this on purpose. I'm almost done, so stay with me. I'm setting you up with this for this on purpose. Abner had been on the other side, right? He had been following Saul. Joab had been on the right side the whole time. Abner's Joab's rival, right? They're both captains. A competition begins between the two of them, but here's the thing. God had Joab in a specific spot to put David on the throne. Joab was a key man to David. God would have continued to use Joab. God loved Joab. God would have taken care of Joab. There's no question about that. God also had Abner over here, and God saw in Abner some things that Joab couldn't see because Joab was a rival. Joab was only looking at facts that were actually accurate facts about 
Abner. Do you understand what I'm saying? He's looking at Abner, and he knows this guy's a mess. This guy's wrong. He sees accurate facts about Abner. But what he can't see is what God alone can see, and that is the heart in Abner. God saw a loyal man, and God knew that one day God was going to use him to unite the kingdom under King David. Abner goes, these circumstances happen. God's beginning to do what God does, and he's moving. Abner brings the thing over to David. He's trying to set the whole thing up. Joab comes in from a battle after that, finds out Abner had been there and left. That manipulative Joab boy. What's David doing? What's his problem? David made peace with Abner. Listen, if the king desires peace with your rival, is that okay with you? If the king desires to bless your rival, is that okay with you? If the king desires to merge with your rival and bring your rival into your church, is that okay with you? Somebody said to me years ago, we don't want their type around here. Well, uh, I don't know how I'd live without the guy they said they didn't want around here. He's been a right hand to me. We don't want their type. I said, we don't. No, we don't want their type around here. Like, what are you talking about? What'd they ever do to you? You know what the problem was? Was not the person, I will guarantee you this, was not the person they were talking about. It was a competitive spirit inside the person that wanted position, power, and prominence in the church. I said, well, I don't know what you're talking about, but I want them. Hey, if God wants to promote your rival, is that okay? Do do you love the king or do you love yourself? If you love the king and he loves that guy, can you love that guy on behalf of the king? You know what Joab does? Joab goes down there and says, hey, go get Abner. Sends some messengers out there, brings Abner out there. Pretends like he's buddies with Abner. Guts him. And the Bible tells you he gutted him for Asahel. You do that to my brother, leaves him wallowing in his blood. You know why? Joab got bitter in the competition. Joab lost something that hurt and it hurt bad. The right thing to do would have been never get in the competition in the first place. But we all do anyways. Just so you know, I'm not being hard on you. We all do anyways. The next right thing to do is once it didn't go right, let it go. Learn from it. I caused my brother's death. Well, I got a long way to go and God has a kingdom to establish and a kingdom to merge and battles to be fought and won and you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to let this thing go. I'm going to forgive. It was my own fault, and I will never allow, I will never allow somebody else to get killed because I was an egomaniac idiot again. God help me. You see the right response? Instead, Joab got bitter, and he settled his score. And you know what he did when he settled his score? He put himself on the wrong side of the king. Let's close it. I want you to go look at it. Let's close it, but turn with me. We won't even come back here. Turn with me, if you would, please, to the book of 1 Kings. 
I want you to see chapter 2. King David is about to pass off the scene now. As this goes on, we'll, we'll look a little bit more at this relationship between Joab and David. It's a toxic relationship. But in 2 Kings chapter number 2, verse number 5, King David's about to pass off the scene and he's advising his son on what to do to establish the kingdom. And he says, Moreover, thou knowest what Joab, the son of Zariah, did to me. Well, what did he do to David? He killed Absalom, his son. The king said, don't kill the boy. And he said, forget the king. You know what this kid did? See that? He had a character of competition and self-will and self-promotion and self-agenda. And what he did to the two captains of the hosts of Israel and to Abner, the son of Ner, we saw that this morning, and then to Amasa, the son of Jether, whom he slew. We'll get to Amasa later. And shed the blood of war. How? God intended him, the king intended him to have peace with those people. And instead of knowing when to have peace, he decided it was time to fight. See the dichotomy of it when you're a fighter, when you're taught to be a soldier, when you're taught to stand for truth, taught to stand against sin, and then God puts you in a group of sinners and says get along with each other. And notice what happens when he shed the blood of war in peace. The king didn't want him shedding that blood. And he put the blood of war upon his girdle that was on his loins and in the shoes that were on his feet. You know what we're we're about here? We're about the truth. Bible Believers Church, right? You know what you're supposed to be girt about with? Your loins are supposed to be girt about with? Truth. You know what your feet are supposed to be shod with? The preparation of the gospel of peace. You know, folks, there's guys out there that are on the other side right now that God might see in their heart. Someday I'm going to bring him in. Yeah. Not, only, not only other Christians. See, that's what's clicked for me. I, always, I never had too much of a problem looking at the world like they're on the wrong side, but they need the gospel. But you know, there's some Christians that right now ain't where they ought to be, and they cause you heartbreak. But God might see down in that heart that he's going to bring them on board some point. And what happens when you begin competitions you shouldn't be in and fighting against each other and striving against each other and competing with each other and wanting position and recognition and all the rest of that stuff is you will sooner or later, you'll wind up cutting somebody you're not supposed to be cutting and that blood starts squirting all over that girdle of truth. And you look down because it's somebody you're close to. He was close enough to him that when he shed the blood, the blood filled up his own shoes. These guys were experts with the sword hit the main arteries, they know exactly how to kill you and kill you fast. That's a lot of blood come out of that man real quick. And it filled up his shoes. Do you know how many churches that stand for the truth and preach the gospel have been marred and stained by bloodshed that should not have been shed? Do you know how many of your family members are waiting to see you get your nose bent out of shape, get mad at the church and leave? Because they're that close to getting saved, getting right, and getting in. And the devil starts working on you and working on somebody else and causing a problem and causing that rift. Because he knows that if he can get you messed up, he'll get bitterness in you. You'll make mistakes. You'll get on the wrong side of the king. And not only ruin your own life, but it'll stain the truth and it'll stain the gospel because of our spirit. Now your parting thought is this. 
You're supposed to be competitive. You're supposed to run a race. You're supposed to wrestle. But you know who you're supposed to compete against? You. When you have a competitive spirit, make sure you focus it the right direction. I'm not supposed to be looking in the other guy's lane. I'm told to run my race with patience, the race set before me. I'm supposed to push myself to be what God wants me to be. I'm supposed to bring under my body to control my reactions when their actions are wrong or to control my actions when my actions want to be wrong. I'm to be competing against me so that me and him can get as close as he wants us to be. If I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? He said, stop looking at him and stop competing with him. You know how he ended it? Follow thou me. You know what he's telling you this morning? Don't you worry about anybody else or even yourself and where you're going to get. Just follow Jesus and he'll get you there safe and in his time and it will be productive and it won't be marred by a bunch of heartbreak and bloodshed that didn't have to happen. Let's stand to our